Hello and welcome to the Hey Queer London podcast, Tea and Cake. Uh, each episode we pull back the velvet curtain, put on a brew and have a natter with the fabulous people doing fabulous things for and about London's queer community. This week we're chatting to programmer, producer, performer, critic, campaigner, researcher, filmmaker and Dr Ducky himself, Ben Walters. Uh, ben is performing his show How to Build a Hope Machine at And What Queer Arts Festival at the Chateau on the 14th of March and he is very kindly swung by to have a chat with us. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. Good. Thanks so much for coming by. Um, so, Ben, we want to talk about um, your recent sort of PhD that you've completed after a certain amount of time. How long How long have you been studying it? It feels like about 112 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it actually started uh, at the end of 2014 was when I started doing the PhD. And then basically I was doing a couple of years field work immersed in these incredible community projects that Ducky have been doing. Mm -hmm. And then I spent a couple of years sort of locked in various libraries, tearing my hair out and trying to conceptualize it all. <laughs> and then passed the PhD and now trying to kind of get the ideas out there in a slightly more accessible, entertaining way. Mm. And how did you end up at Cabaret? Because obviously your history, you're, you know, you're a writer and you were writing about film and obviously you're an academic, but what led you to the world of Cabaret? Was it entertainment first or interest? How did it work? I mean, I've never been very good at planning, really. Everything that I've done has been <laughs> sort of just what comes along uh. at a given time. So yeah, I was mostly a film journalist, um, sort of in my 20s. Then I went to New York for a couple of years, which was amazing, and then came back and was a bit in need of work. <laughs> and I'd been working at Time Out before that on the film desk, and a friend of mine, Simone Baird, while I'd been away, had started the cabaret section as a dedicated section that she saw how much this amazing work was going on in London, and she started a section devoted to that. Then she got a promotion, needed someone else to run the section. <laughs> I needed some work. <laughs> And it kind of came together because I, I knew it a little bit, the cabaret scene before that, but not very much. So it was a real kind of in at the deep end sort of experience. This would have been about 2009. Hmm. Um, and I just really fell in love with it. It was amazing. I mean, I love, I love, I still love film and it had been an amazing privilege to, to write about film for a living. But basically this, the cabaret stuff kind of blew my mind. It was just so much more uh fun and <laughs> challenging and interesting and original and just the amount of this incredible work that was going on that was really just so obviously coming from people's deepest sort of sensibilities mm. um, and expressing these really unique perspectives in really unique ways and so it was just a huge privilege to be able to um to get to cover that scene to go and see all of this work and to shout about it yeah and had you been into the sort of film that was quite subversive or were you into more commercial projects? Because I mean, I think the first time you experience cabaret without either working in it or really knowing it can be a bit mind blowing. It can be a little bit so sort of personal, as you say, that it's hard to decipher or were you, were you immediately up for the challenge? Were you like, I, I kind of want to break this down. I want to work out what this means. It was more that, it was more that, because I had already got a bit of experience that just through thinking these people look really interesting, I'd already seen people like David Hoyle, yeah. and Kiki and Herb, and some of those sort of amazing acts. So it wasn't like completely out of the blue. And funny enough, some of the later film stuff that I'd been doing had started to overlap 
just in terms of the, the films that I'd been concentrating on when given the chance. So things like Short Bus, John Cameron Mitchell yeah. film, yeah, yeah. Um, which was which I got to write about in a couple of different places when that came out. And that was just before I moved to New York. And so actually then that was a bit of a bridging thing those couple of years, sort of 2007 to 2009 in New York, I actually got more into the cabaret scene there than I ever had been in London. Mm. But of course, these things all cross-fertilize. Yeah. So it then um, when I came back, I had a bit of an inkling, but I didn't know how much was going on in London mm. and how many different kinds of things were going on that, you know, at time out, we had this section that we called cabaret which I can go into details about that choice of word <laughs> and all of that kind of thing. Um, it covered a wide variety of stuff. I it would covered imagine. a really wide variety yeah, yeah, yeah. of, I mean, ba in a nutshell, basically to me, it, it was stuff that didn't have a fourth wall. Yeah. Live yeah. performance that doesn't have a fourth wall. And so that kind of spanned this whole spectrum from, you know, really intense live art, experimental cerebral kind of stuff at one end going through drag and burlesque and circus mm. and then going to you know kids shows or just sort of anything that was doing these different things it was to me it sort of became clear that what was really exciting was this idea of, of work that looks you in the eye and holds out a hand and where there's a real connection and that something is happening in that room at that time with those people which is never going to happen again in the same way. Hmm. However much the material is prepared and the performers know what they're doing, the whole point is to unlock something unique about that encounter. And so that was an amazing opportunity to do that. And also, I think, and to a certain extent, to get some conversations going between some of the people in those different sort of sub-scenes that just by covering all of them in the same bit of a magazine, sometimes that started little connections that people didn't necessarily know oh they're doing that over there oh maybe we should talk to them or yeah. oh we should go and check out that thing i wouldn't have thought about that over and yeah because i suppose people are working in their own pockets aren't they and they're yeah. you know I, I think the glory is a good space in haggerston for the sort of development of interesting cabaret and you know i'm an east london boy so i'm far more likely to be found at the glory um but steve you're from south london so you'll probably be at the rvt i'm, I'm more likely at the rvt <laughs> and at a ducky and seeing everything that's going on um because i also guess it's 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 a huge sense of community that they're building there as well yeah what they're doing. yeah and i think that's the thing that's been well there's been such a fascinating arc in i suppose the 10 years personally I've been very engaged in it that when I started covering these scenes it was absolutely that sense of community and that sense of uh, finding spaces where people had the opportunity to do things on their own terms for their own audiences and that collaborative supportive vibe that was there and then of course over the course of the last 10 years things have got a lot more difficult in the world in all sorts of different ways um, so I think there's there's been some really, a lot of things have really been thrown into relief around that. And that sense of community in some ways has been really tested hmm. and in some, in some really productive ways has been challenged mm -hmm. that there have been all sorts of things that, you know, when I look back 10 years ago to some of the work that I was covering, some of the things that I was writing, you look back now and think, hmm, that's probably not how we would phrase those things or yes or think of course. about those things yeah, today. Yeah, yeah yeah um and so to me what 
what's always been really valuable and, is, and remains really valuable about it is that it's a space that takes that kind of exchange, that kind of discourse seriously as part of community. That community isn't about all having the same ideas, all having the same feelings, all having the same views all of the time. It's a sense that a community is stronger when it's able to sustain difference and disagreement and change and fluidity and able to engage those things and recognize them as part of life mm. and something that sometimes that they can be difficult, but that there's there should be space to deal with those things on and off stage in ways that hopefully work to everyone's benefit. But I think it's fair to say that that's the challenges of that both internal and external, I think have come into relief much more in the in recent years than at that time that I started engaging with it. Um, ago. And is it because of financial reasons or is it a combination of political correctness? How, what's the overriding factor? Because I suppose I'd be interested to know how involved the venues are when the artist comes to them. Because you say, you know, it's a, it's a space for artists to be able to... Um, present their work in the most honest authentic way but then do the venues have any kind of decision making involved you know do they get involved in terms of producing how does it work well it varies hugely um so i think there's all these problems at all the well problems isn't necessarily the word but um at all these sort of levels of how these things work from like the global political mm. down to who's going to do the door who's going to do the security on a given night these things are always negotiations. There's always sort of challenges and opportunities around that. Mm. Um, so one of the things that's really changed over the past few years is the number of spaces that are available, that we've seen a lot of closures of queer spaces in London. And that, in a certain way, has reduced the number of reliable stages that are available to people who want to perform. But On the other hand, uh, there's been a rise in sort of roving nights and pop-up events, and, pop -up events. And things like that so and those come with their own opportunities and challenges yeah because I, I was going to say though sorry to interrupt i was going to say a lot of these venues though that have shut there wasn't always a space for cabaret performers though either or sort of abstract works to be put on i mean within the own community i think it's fair to say i mean it's some of them were just traditional club nights and as we know some famous ones have sort of turned their back on some sections of our community so that must have always been difficult it seems to me like the rvt definitely has been pushing the envelope and pushing it forward more so than any other community within or or venue maybe the glory now and yeah probably the glory now as well for the sort of other side of london but even within our own community there maybe hasn't been as much support as there needed to be well i think it's i think these things are dynamic so mm. the it's, it, I think it's really complicated. I think there's so many moving parts. So I think as the number of reliably available spaces decreases, you get this kind of scarcity situation, mm. which then means that any given space has more expectation kind of loaded onto it yeah. that it should be representing as many different parts of the community as possible. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways that's really important and really valid mm. um, but I think there's also ways in which ideally there'd be a huge range there'd be a huge plurality of different spaces for differently queer people 
some of which are not going to be compatible with each other. That doesn't necessarily mean hostility. Mm. In some cases, thanks to certain individuals' words and actions, it can be hostility. Yeah. But there's also yeah. kinds of incompatibility which don't have to be hostility. But when you're in a situation where it feels like, well, there's only a small number of spaces to go around and you look at it and it seems like they're always taken up by the same kinds of people, that doesn't seem fair. And then you've got this kind of multi-tentacle beast that you're trying to fight, <laughs> where on the one hand, that's really legitimate and really needs to be addressed and talked about and dealt with. But on the other hand, for as long as the focus is on well, who has access to this scarce resource rather than why is this resource so scarce? Then these problems can seem more kind of internal than external, if that makes sense. So it's like if, if we're saying the fundamental problem here is that there are not enough spaces in London for people to be different people to be different in themselves in the way they express themselves to be different with each other to organize their relationships and their behavior in different ways if the amount of spaces where just beginning those kinds of experiments with pleasure is so limited yeah then it's going to end up with tension it's going to end up with with competition and in a way once you're playing the game of competition you're sort of already onto a loser and that's, and that's not to put the responsibility for that on the individuals who are at the sharp end. Hmm. That's absolutely not the case. Um, but the, I think one of the real challenges is to try to, to think about things as much as possible in terms of how do we address the structural issues that limit the availability of opportunities for self-expression and self-determination rather than what is the door code at this specific venue on this specific night going to be mm -hmm. that might be a really legitimate question yeah that week yeah but that's not going to be a way to fix the to, overall problem fix the overall problem yeah because i was also going to say i think it's um i've noticed through the through researching hakeway london and for you building the sort of community there as well that it seems to be there's a lot of other spaces that aren't traditionally solely focused on the lgbt community that are also open their doors a lot more to it as well so seeing the shows that um, the Soho Theatre, for example, showing a lot more of people like the Sex Shells and those sort of very sort of big cabaret acts that started off at the Glory, which are now on like a lot of a, lot, a huge larger stage. And then also seeing um, a lot more of the drag brunches, going to sort of different random cafes and places around around London, I think is always is always quite fascinating to see as well. Well, yeah. And again, it's it's the way that these things shift and I suppose for the purposes of conversation like this, you know, what do we mean by queer? And where does there come a point when queer sort of becomes a different thing from LGBT or a different thing from gay? And so there's certainly, I think, lots of stuff in London that can definitely be described as gay, but maybe not be described as queer mm. in the sense that I understand mm -hmm. queer as sort of a position that's, you know, that's, that's open to difference and contradiction and troubling existing categories and well you you do talk about that in your i mean we we've, we've seen video of your presentation that you're going to be doing at um your talk that you're going to be doing at and what and you mentioned the use of the word queer and what it means to different people and you were saying for you how, how would you define it what does it mean for you 
Well, I suppose I need to try and remember the lines from the talk. <laughs> Put you right on the spot Cause, there. Because I spent ages nailing it down for the talk. Um, so, trying to channel. Um, so queer is a very loaded term that's used by lots of different people in different ways. It can be an insult. It can be an identity marker. Or it can be a position of criticality that sort of engages with the given structures of what in the academy we might call normativity or yeah. different kinds of, you know, essentially what makes um, a validated life. Um, and queer as a way of exposing the way that, that that sort of conversation, those understandings in society are never natural. Then a, a lot of work always goes into making it seem like it's natural and obvious and common sense that this is what a successful, validated life looks like. It seems normal. Everyone knows, you know, husband, wife, 2.4 kids, independent, you know, financial stability, all, all these mm -hmm. things that seem absolutely obvious and normal from watching telly and all the rest of it. And so essentially queer, as I understand it, as a sort of discourse does come out of engaging with what we would now call LGBT identities and contexts mm. and lives and understandings but I think can can be really usefully expanded out to all sorts of other things that you know people can be queered because of the the way that they're racialized because of the way that they're disabled because of um, the way that they're framed in relation to national borders or homelessness all these sorts of things um, that in more or less obvious, explicit ways, essentially people are told, well, you are worth a bit less. You are failing at life a bit. You, sh your needs and desires don't deserve to be taken as seriously as the people who are doing it right, whoever yeah. they are. And so I think we're at this quite interesting point where there are certain kinds of uh, gay or LGBT expression that have got quite a lot of currency in mainstream culture at the moment um, and sometimes those find expression in ways that do point up some of these problems and sometimes they're folded into the structures that perpetuate these problems in you know i think unhelpful ways yeah mm -hmm. and so there's ways in which queer isn't necessarily now most vitally centered around LGBT stuff all the time. Sometimes it is, but sometimes actually, you know, it's looking at asylum seekers, it's looking at migrants, it's looking at, um, you know, all sorts of other ways that lives are kicked to the curb, mm. essentially, by the structures of society. And there are ways in which, you know, you don't get a, a get out of jail free card just because you're gay, <laughs> you know, from participating in some of those other things. But all of that said, I think, unfortunately, we are also now at a bit of a, a kind of backlash point where some of the things that even a couple of years ago were generally seen as unproblematic in a mainstream sort of way um, in LGBT context are now being kind of weaponized mm. <laughs> culturally, mm -hmm. like drag queens and children. And, you know, story sort of protests against drag storytelling and that kind of thing, where I think we are seeing now a kind of emboldened new kind of right wing, which is quite happy to go back to a lot of these 
very, very deep, powerful kinds of prejudice that can be mobilized against LGBT people around the safety of children, mm. around mm -hmm. uh, degeneracy. I mean, it's a lot of this stuff that really does go back very clearly to to Nazi rhetoric. Yeah, 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 but absolutely. Map it on very, very clearly. So yeah. I think we always have to have to be aware of how dynamic this stuff is that you know sometimes it's good that all of these things are dynamic and it opens up opportunities for progress and for change mm. and for reflection but at other times those dynamic movements can go in in very damaging regressive violent directions so would you say then the word queer is to you is synonymous with activism of some description would you say that because i i think i definitely see that as a, a queer man myself i think in when i came out I think we were maybe around the time of a Labour government, so things were better. Things seemed to be better. And we definitely, I just missed the sort of activism of the late 80s and, and all of that, so I didn't really have much of an understanding of it or a process. And the word queer was always a negative word, whether it was being said within the community or or from external sources. And it's only, I think, in the since we've seen such a cultural shift and we've seen, you know, both in the US and the UK with the current governments and how emboldened now uh, racists are and, and homophobes and, and, and bigots, that that word now, if you sort of loudly proclaim that you're queer, is is, is really sort of taking a stand and and pushing back against that rhetoric. Do you think that's true? I mean, if it's pretty much, I mean, you've said it in a much more eloquent and detailed way, but that's definitely how I see it personally as well. I, I mean, that is, yeah, to a large extent, that's how I see it. I don't know if I'd necessarily use the word specifically of activism, but to me it does, it certainly implies a kind of consciousness mm. and a consciousness of of difference and of being outside these kinds of normative, acceptable frames um but then it's complicated it has a lot of it has a lot of other uses i mean to me i also think that to a, to an extent i see even the most kind of homonormative you know that what's now a bit of a cliche of uh some well someone who could be a bit like me a cisgender middle class gay white man who's not disabled you know these you know that sort of within queer or LGBTQ contexts, uh, you know, people like me have a lot of relative privilege and can certainly and often do act in ways that reproduce a lot of the kinds of injustice that we see through society. So there are ways in which those, you know, that people who could be described like that can act in ways that I certainly wouldn't describe as queer to the extent that they reproduce a lot of these damaging mm. kind of forms. But on the other hand, I do see people like that as queer in the sense that all of us who come under the LGBTQ umbrella in whatever way have grown up inevitably with these deep senses of shame and trauma and rejection and, and unpleasant difference. And these things which I think, you know, have a really deep effect on on anyone who's put through that essentially throughout childhood. Well, I mean, <laughs> to an extent throughout our lives. Um, <laughs> and so I think that even, even though it's then possible that some people respond to those challenges 
in ways that actually, to my mind, are regressive and unhelpful and do reproduce these unhelpful things in society. I think it's still worth remembering that sometimes that comes out of these kinds of damage that lead oh, people to behave yeah. in ways that are defensive. Not a lot of people um, are introspective or want to unpack that kind of thing that's going on in their own lives, you know, or that they've been through. Because like you say, it's too traumatic. It'll take too much time, um, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's often what you see, but it is difficult because I suppose you to stop and have empathy and try and understand that is a difficult thing. So, I mean, to go back to, to what you're putting together with the hope machine and, and everything else is that you're basically trying to create this level of optimism and, safe a safe space for people to create and use that to move forward yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so essentially it sort of comes so this idea of hope machines this is sort of what turned out to be the central idea of um of my phd research really. yeah not that i knew that when i was doing <laughs> it but by the time i emerged blinking from the library with at 2 a.m <laughs> 2 a.m yeah yeah how did you how did you start i mean what was your initial approach well so initially again it was one of these things that um that just happened that wasn't <laughs> planned that you know having having kind of fluked my way into the cabaret section at timeout i then fluked my way out or <laughs> or chance ended that because they cut the section at the time when timeout cut all the smaller sections mm -hmm. um so again i needed work and basically at that time uh ducky had got together who if people don't know ducky they've been doing saturday nights at the royal Vauxhall tavern for nearly 25 years and also a whole bunch of other bigger immersive nightlife clubbing and performance events and some new relatively new community projects working with uh, working with young queer performers, working with homeless people, working with older people without a lot of friends and family, working with research into the sort of the history of London's fun queer nightlife scenes <laughs> in the 20th century and earlier. And basically Ducky had got together with Queen Mary University of London and had got funding for somebody to do a PhD about them and particularly about these community projects. Um, so, they advertised it kind of like a job. Oh, did they? Oh, is that really okay? Yeah. Just on LinkedIn one day when you see this job come through and you go, do you know what? I'm going to apply for that one. Basically, I normally I drink there, but I'm going to apply for this instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, that, and I, had, I had done a bit of postgraduate research before, but not really in related areas. But, um, but I knew Ducky, I knew their work, and I sort of knew... As I was saying, I knew that I had these ideas and hunches and sort of feelings about the potential power of some of this performance work that I developed by covering it as a journalist. And then this did seem like a really cool way to, to try to go into that in more detail. But so essentially, I was more or less, um, I suppose I, I sort of treated it almost with my journalist hat on at first. So really in the first couple of years of the PhD, I was just embedded with these projects that Ducky were doing that were going on sort of mostly away from, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that they even existed if you're just going to the Vauxhall Tavern on a Saturday night. Well, I think that's fair because I don't think until I watched your video 
that I had heard of all these nights. I'd heard maybe a one or two, but not not all of them at all. And it was just, it was massively eye-opening just hearing you talk about them and, and what's involved in them. So it must've been fascinating to really get into it. <laughs> well, it was, thank you. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Um, and it was amazing as, I mean, it was amazing as a person, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also compared to how you sort of cover events and things as a journalist, and also, I realized, in fact, how most academic researchers cover these things. I was really privileged that I really got to be inside these projects for, you know, for years. For Not that they all happen every single week, mm. but that I'd get to go and spend, you know, I'd go to the Posh Club, which is the sort of afternoon cabaret tea dance. Which looks amazing. People. When I saw it, I was like, I didn't even realize it even existed. But I got a little emotional watching that clip, I have to yeah, say. No, I did. Just because you could see how, A well put together it was but also just the joy in people's faces who were there it was just it was lovely it was really lovely um and i'd never heard of it before i don't think i don't think i'd ever heard of it um is it still going i assume it is and they're still running and, and it is yeah. it is yeah um and it, and i mean as you say that's an incredible it's an incredible event and you could you can watch a video online and mm. instantly get a sense that something really special is going on yeah. here or if you get the chance to go along to one of the events of an afternoon in a church hall or a community centre, <laughs> whether they have them, where it's all, you know, decked out. But I love the idea that people are dressed up. People that are doing it are dressed up as well, you know, so they're really making the effort to make it so special for people who, as you say in your, in your talk and it says in the video, maybe don't have family or close friends around them who can see them all the time. I'm assuming, and excuse me if this is a bit of an ignorant question, but they're, they're not all LGBT no. people. So I, I, I gathered that, but there are maybe some i mean i saw there was one guy who seemed to be having the time of his life performing on the stage and i thought oh i think maybe there's a little bit of a old cabaret star that's been unearthed there um but that's great so but but do the people who go along to it from the community know that the organizers are lgbt um yes is the short answer yeah. i mean they have the posh club now runs in about five different locations around England. Um, and obviously people come in at different times. So it's not like every single guest at every single event even knows who the organizers are, right. let alone what they might get up to. Okay, so no, I, I just, I wasn't sure whether no, it was presented in that way or it was just a case of just come along and have fun and enjoy it. And it doesn't matter who's organized it. I mean, Well, it's exactly that. Yeah. And I think it's another it's a really good example, I think, of how this sort of expanded idea of queer can come into yeah, play. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I, just my, what I was thinking of when you were describing it, because I suppose it's about expanding all our limitations. In my head, when I watched the video, I immediately thought, oh, do all those people know? And then I thought, well, hold on, they don't need to know. That's the, the point of it. So I'm glad that you, you've clarified that. Yeah, and, and they don't need to know, but it also, at times, it can provide a really nice space of exchange Yeah, that you can have um, conversations. But, you know, there's lots of volunteers who work mm -hmm. at the Posh Club, most of whom do come through Ducky as a sort of queer performance organization. Mm -hmm. They're performers or they're people who've worked with Ducky on the nightlife stuff. And not all, but most of them tend to be LGBT, mm. um, some of them quite fabulously visibly so. <laughs> so, you know, all the volunteers are dressed very smartly and in sort of black and white, but some of them might be dressed in what we would not think of as conventional gender norms. So they still look very smart and elegant and beautiful. 
bump some of the guests at the club might do a bit of a double take if mm. they haven't mm-hmm. seen a person like if they don't associate a person like this wearing makeup and nail varnish or something like that and then because it's this really beautiful sort of um uh like because the guests are made such high status they're spoiled rotten and they're really treated so well that i think it it makes it easier to have certain conversations where certain sorts of curiosity can yeah. come out where people can just feel that maybe they're comfortable to ask questions and learn a bit and that people can can have that kind of exchange and that's the sort of thing that you maybe see over the the length of time if you can kind of be part of these projects for as long as i had the chance to be um and that kind of gets to this concept of hope machines <laughs> um that really what you realize is that what these things do is just sort of pump out hope yeah in these very different ways so there's there's that project which is for older people mm. who might not have much much social life there's another sort of drop-in arts project based in homeless shelters um there was the the summer school the ducky homosexualist summer school <laughs> dhss i was like, i, I want to go on that minibus i, I would, like, I I would love like to come graduate. and join everyone on that minibus i'd like to graduate from that school it would be nice get a little certificate <laughs> <laughs> so it's all these sort of different projects that on the face of it don't really have much in common with how they're set up what they actually do but i yeah. realized well all of these have are, one common they theme have this running thing through them of identifying some kind of hope that a, really that a different world is possible and it's funny how as it, as it opens up as well you know the question that i asked you it's like when i first saw it i thought this is such a lovely thing to do for everybody that gets to go and then the more you expand it the more you see the benefits and the hope of that project and just how lovely it is. And it genuinely is so lovely because they're having people that go, that are having a great time. And as you say, they might start a conversation that they would normally never be able to start mm-hmm. in any other situation. And then all of a sudden they humanize it. You know, they humanize something that they have a limited perspective on at the time or may have a limited perspective on. And I think that's just so exciting and so lovely. And it's just, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like, it's an age old, sort of version of events that you know people are always very judgmental of things that they fear that they don't know that scream at them from headlines a lot of the time and then as soon as they meet someone they're like oh but i like her and i like him yeah you know what i mean i like them or them (laughs) yeah and it's um yeah so so sort of what the guys are doing is so just empowering and lovely well and that absolutely going back the other way as well in terms of you know how people think about older people yeah and some of the you know, and some of the kind of the young volunteers being amazed. It's like, I didn't know that people in their eighties could have fun like this, <laughs> that they could dance and they're, and they're like, they're quite rude. <laughs> all this sort of so they're telling dick jokes all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's but, amazing. But I was, I, I, I think that idea of hope is quite fascinating. And I guess in a world at the moment that could be seen to quite a lot of people as losing hope in a lot of spaces with the rise of is that the right the like the rise of the right wing and sort of there's a lot of pressures against the against the queer community and the LGBTQ plus community in London. How do you with all this changing, how do you think what do you think that people can do in the community to help to help bring hope back? Well I suppose I mean for me the real fundamental thing underlying this thinking is is really about small things 
It's about taking small things seriously, small needs and small pleasures, and being sort of mindful, intentional, and, and conscious about valuing those things and setting up little structures that can enable those to happen. So that's where this whole idea of homemade mutant hope machines. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. That like, <laughs> <laughs> it's that again. It was this sense of looking, looking at these ducky projects, but then sort of looking more widely at some of the ways that real change has been achieved by people, really at the sharp end of of really, you know, crushing pressures. Mm. You know, some of them worse than the things that we're facing now and trying to look at, well, how have these things happened? And that usually or often what has happened is, you know, starting by recognizing and taking seriously, okay, we have, we have this problem, we have this shortcoming, we have this, this obstacle that we need to, to try to overcome. And that matters in itself. And it's not inevitable. It might be hard, mm. it might be really, really hard, mm. but a, another world is possible. It's possible to imagine that. And it's possible to start making it in little piecemeal sort of ways. So you don't expect that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning in utopia, <laughs> but you start to recognize, well, actually, we it's, it's the things that I think we all automatically do anyway, to, to, to carve out these little spaces, whether, you know, like in childhood, just, you know, dressing up in your parents' clothes when they're out of the house or having a little porn stash <laughs> somewhere, having grown up in the analog days, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, it was out. the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was talking about this earlier. I don't think I've ever had a, bought a porn mag myself. Well, you, yes, I'm, just, I'm, too young. I'm too young and a digital person. Oh, so God, go. well, yeah. It's like, well, it's, you know, whatever your hidden browser files are. <laughs> there used to be like a VHS tape that was passed around the school. That was uh, that was my day. I mean, it was quite worn by the time we got to our house, but anyway. The static. <laughs> yeah. When we have the, you know, these really deep needs hmm. and desires and things like that, that we do always find these little ways sort of between the cracks and round the edges and stuff like that. And we find these little technologies really to sustain those things. I mean, it might it might be keeping a diary you know, that for a lot of people, keeping a journal of some kind can be a lifeline mm. because it does assert, I do exist. I do have thoughts and feelings. And these these are things that exist in the world. And then you can look back over that and see, and actually I've, I've had a journey and I've grown or mm. I've faced problems, whatever it is, but that, it, that you exist in space. And then that starts to, to sort of graduate out a bit and people start to make you know, groups with each other, mm. which might just be a case of meeting up with certain friends that you know that you can just be yourselves with each other mm. wherever you are. That's a little hope machine in yeah. itself. And then once it's an actual venue of some kind or an organization of some kind, which might be activism with a capital A, like, you know, ACT UP, yeah. we could think of as a hope machine. As an example, yeah. Um, but also it might be things like, I mean, one of the things... Uh, that I've slightly fallen in love with. There was a thing called Casa Susanna, which was like in upstate New York in the 1950s. It's like a transvestite. I love the idea holiday of this. Ranch. Yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah, I love that. Who set that up? Do you know who set it up? Did you find any research well, it was on Susanna. it? Susanna. Well, yeah. Susanna. Susanna. Uh, um, but no, I mean, was it a group of people from, say, 
I mean, I guess, when was it? The 50s? It's, yeah, starting so in the 50s. Was there and much of a... It was all underground. It was um, underground, but it wasn't overtly political. No. It was just, this is something that we want to do. Someone has a the space <laughs> out in the countryside, away from prying eyes, and we can just go up there and hang out. How and fabulous. And experiment with ourselves and start to, to build things so it's you know in the first case these things often come come about in a sort of defensive or sort of you know that people need a bit of escape or a bit of relief or just somewhere to to draw a breath but then actually once they start kind of really firing then you start to see that they can be these incredible engines of of creation so they can be incredible sort of forms of defense Mm. but they can also be where amazing new stuff happens so, like another amazing example, I think, is um, the ballroom community mm-hmm. in in North America. Well, and now all around Everywhere. the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. But Thanks which, to Pose and the various likes. I mean, even though most of us have seen Paris is Burning, I would say a lot of younger queens probably haven't seen it, and maybe well, maybe on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, and maybe now they've gone and found it out. But yeah, I mean, incredible. Yeah, and well, uh, just a really good example, I think, of these things that to me make a homemade mutant hope machine, which is that, you know, it's something that comes out of lived experience. Mm. So it is about those actual feelings, those desires and wants and needs. Um, It's something that operates relatively autonomously. Mm. That's always relative because like nothing is really (laughs) autonomous in this world. Everything (laughs) is connected, but something that isn't, that's that's sort of self, self self-fueled. And that's the kind of homemadeness. And then things that are able to adapt to changing conditions, because especially when we're talking about queer circumstances, you know, queer lives mm. are often really fragile, really precarious, really uh, sort of vulnerable to, to being bashed off course. Mm. So it helps if these things are mutant, if they're able to to change. And then, yeah, just the, the machinery side of it just being this kind of routine mm-hmm. idea that hope is, because uh, in academic terms, it kind of came out of there's... Um, there's an amazing researcher called Jose Esteban Munoz who wrote an incredible book called Cruising Utopia where he talks about the value of hope in queer context, especially he's writing particularly in the context of people of colour in the United States. Yeah. But he talks really powerfully about the importance of hope as something to work towards in that kind of utopian, aspirational, one step at a time sort of way. Mm. Um, but he tends to talk about it as fairly ephemeral, Mm-hmm. that hope comes along and, and you know it when you see it and you're grateful when you find it um, but it's almost a bit of luck mm. whereas looking at lots of these projects I wanted to kind of put that into this slightly more concrete machine sense that in fact there are you know places and groups mm-hmm. and forms and processes that do work I think as hope machines that they do that they have this routine reliable quality not necessarily like 100 percent every time mm. but that actually you know if if you like the glory then you can be fairly confident that when you go along you will get that bit of hope that you're not going to get from a weatherspoons <laughs> <laughs> probably unless very, you love very different experience, <laughs> very different experience. <laughs> I, I was going to say though what in um what exciting things are you seeing at the moment um like projects or nights that have cropped up around london that are really so, so for you, sort of showcasing this? Well, I mean, I think we now, I mean, there's this really interesting in terms of what we were talking about earlier around venues. Um, 
that I think now a lot of the so some of that is happening in venues. So the glory is an amazing example. The chateau. Yeah, I've not been, but I've and you're doing your show there, and I've I mean I've heard people have been talking about it a lot, but I live east, so I just I love what I love what they're doing and how supportive they've been to the watching them grow with Hakeway London and 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 seeing how they what they do for the community and how and how much how diverse their nights have been for the different members of the community groups I think is amazing. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, you say that you're East London and that's part of their thinking being in Camberwell, that there are so few spaces in South East London. Yeah. So that's a really important thing around a physical site. But I think also at the moment on the scene, you know, there's in the past few years, there's just been this fantastic kind of proliferation of all these um, nights of, of people kind of coming together as groups, showcasing aspects of identity for want of a better word mm -hmm. that we that hadn't really been um been seen as much as they should have been on the performance cabaret scene of you know things like the cocoa butter club and kings of color and the bitten peach and yep. uh disabled queer and here and you know all these sorts of different groups coming up um and really showing you know and kind of adopting this model of the the sort of touring show but also being these kind of incubators that they're supporting talent that they're supporting different kinds of work that they're supporting each other and they're working with venues but they're not kind of um, necessarily associated with a specific venue all the time mm. or, it's like a temporary home yeah yeah um, and there's a kind of I think there's a sort of mutant power <laughs> in that in a sense which um, you know of having I suppose a brand I guess mm -hmm. um, but being, you know, it being understood that, well, this is a group of people who are, you know, who are literally platforming ways of, you know, forms of expression, forms of experience that don't get taken seriously. Mm. Um, and I think the way that those kinds of, of groups have, um, have sort of used the, the landscape as it is, is, is so inspirational, I think, and so powerful. Um, and I think, yeah, at a time when, yes, there's a lot of discourse of various kinds that is uh, not always respectful or um, kind of uh, progressive. I mm -hmm. think as I think having these sorts of organisations that that are able to to show these. I was going to say unique perspectives, but of course it's like a whole series of, of unique perspectives, you know, <laughs> within any given collective mm. and then among the different collectives. So it's, I think in a lot of ways, it's sort of demonstrating the plurality itself, I think is so powerful and showing, you know, difference as a strength mm. and, um, and collective undertakings as a strength as well and care as a strength. I think the way that a lot of these groups are really, you know, unambiguously sort of front and center about the care that is due within working contexts and then between performers and audiences and around how venues behave towards performers and how people behave within venues and audiences mm. and this sense of, of these sort of proliferating conversations around, you know, the politics of performance culture, um, which aren't always easy conversations um, but I think the way that, that 
that has been opened up as a space for discussion, um, especially when it happens in person. <laughs> I think there's a difference. You know, I think people interact differently in person to the way that they do online. Um, and that's that's a challenge just because because access to physical space is a challenge in the city at the moment because yeah. it's been so commodified. Um, but I think I think those those sorts of groups really take that seriously and, yeah. and do bring I, it to them. And I definitely think it's also quite a lot more about as well at the moment of actually physically getting out there and going to those spaces. I think that's part of why I started the project was because I wanted to I know that I'm bad for sitting at home on my sofa on a Saturday night, but actually I was like, I wanted to showcase everything that's going on and help and help people realize they don't have to just be on their phones chatting to someone and stuff. They can actually go to these physical spaces and, and build that community and, and talk to those people and meet those people. And, and that's why I hope the more people start doing and, and actually that will bear as much as the scene, there's been less venues that there's more nights, more diversity nights. And actually by pushing, giving people hope, there's, it's going to grow it's going to change and you're going to see more of these spaces again hopefully pop up again you never know like the um there's always hope with the black cap coming back yes which yeah. i know is a project that you're working on as well well yeah that's i mean that one's been running and running yeah <laughs> just keeps going <laughs> it just keeps going um yeah but i mean i mean i think one of the things that's really great about that campaign which um which other people put in a lot more effort week to week than I do. Um, people like Alex Green and Jamie Johnston. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and you know, and we have, I mean, the the owners of the Black Cat in Camden, which if you don't know, had been essentially a sort of um, LGBT cabaret venue since before partial decriminalization in 1967. And essentially the owners wanted to turn it into flats and a restaurant. So they closed it down. Um, we as a campaign have stopped them converting it, but it's still closed. This is four or five years on. Mm. Um, so it's still sitting there empty. So it's sitting there Like empty. the joiners on Hackney Road yes. in East London. That has, that's been closed for over six years now and it's still sitting empty. Yeah. And that's, well, yeah. And, that, and that's got its whole development situation mm. that all of these, you know, all of these things are different, but they're sort of all the same. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that's really cool about the Black Cap situation is that there's been a vigil on Camden High Street outside the Black Cap every Saturday afternoon since it closed. The campaign is out there, you know, with banners, getting it's getting signatures for the petition to reopen it, which I don't know how many thousands that's on there. Um, you know, and it is raising awareness about this problem, but it's also that is a little queer space in itself that pops up on Camden High Street every Saturday lunchtime and is thoroughly embedded in the community and mm-hmm. it, and of course it does come out of um out of this closure and out of campaigning and anger but it's actually a very happy vibe mm. like the sense of, you know sometimes there's singing sometimes there's performance i was going to say if people were still going st- this long in there must be a reason must be something drawing it back and it just maybe ties into the hope and the optimism and the just um, community spirit well that's it it's the hope that that space itself will reopen will reopen mm. but it's also that the the kind of the campaign has become a space in itself yeah and it becomes a space that really resonates with people in camden because the black cat was also part of camden's identity as a place that was associated with sort of grassroots culture and independent culture and stuff like that which everyone in camden recognizes has been 
on the defensive mm. and has been shut down. And you get people from all over the world who come to see Camden Town. <laughs> and sometimes they're really disappointed. That, yeah. Oh, this is just, this is not what I was hoping for. And then they see this weird little explosion of queer oddness <laughs> outside 171. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yes. Well, well, I don't even know what you are, but this is what I, this is what I wanted. This, yeah. is, this is what I think of. A bit of originality that hasn't been, yeah. Because it is one of the only areas of London, I think, still doesn't have a... a has as many queer and communities and spaces like that at all i think there was um don't think north london has at all now does it It used to have there was one but there was one bar that opened up around the corner from the black cap um, was her upstairs yes oh, which yeah. was i went to a couple of times it was it was great and, yeah. um, and unfortunately that shut down but nothing ever replaced it or came back to there used to be green car not green carnation there was a bar on upper street that was like a cocktail bar that was on the corner next to the screen on the green I can't remember what that was called. And then there was another one on the Essex Road as well. I think it was Green Carnation, but I think that might have been what was in Soho. Green Carnation was in Soho. Yeah. So, yeah. But it was green something. And I used to go quite a lot and it was great. And then there was this little, <laughs> there was a little gay bar tucked off Essex Road that was really quirky that you would often find Sue Pollard in. Um, so you knew it was a queer venue. But it was, these were like little pockets places. And then there was another one behind business uh, Islington Design Centre um, that was an old pub, the King's Arms or the King's Head, I think. Um, so there was three in close proximity for ages and they were all shut down and nothing has reappeared in the area. And then obviously you've got Camden next door and there's nothing there and nothing in Farringdon as far as I know. There's nothing. There is in Farringdon. There's, is the, there's the apple tree. The apple tree is... Oh, I thought that was in... Oh, yeah. Like, Farringdon Clarkwell is... I mean, it's a phenomenal... Weirdly, it used to be... Um, the local so i used to work at an agency around the corner back in the day and uh it used to be our local pub agency pub um <laughs> when it used to be the postman's pub because it's right next to the royal mail post office uh, it's, it's it used to be the postman's, postman's pub, pub. <laughs> no it was it was it was very different but now it's like a i think that's that was also seeing that space open was really yeah. phenomenal because it's in a part of town where they don't have as much of a support network in in the vicinity they're, they're sort of near soho but outside of soho mm. But they also do great food, like definitely pop down if you haven't been. Uh, but they do great food. But it's, and it's fascinating to see them doing, they're doing a, a, a huge array of queer nights. Like they've got yeah, a car park cabaret. They've been doing some drag nights as well and, and serving all, all aspects of the community. And it's, it's, it's amazing. So hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood. And they're not a million miles from the outside project. No, they're not. They're just down the road. Yeah, yeah. Which is another fantastic thing that's opened up, which is a sort of new kind of queer space for mm -hmm. London, which again comes out of rural difficulty, comes out of this epidemic of homelessness among, especially among LGBTQ younger people, that it's something like one in four younger homeless people identifies as LGBT. Um, and the Outside Project is kind of the first place that's really opened up to um, to address that. And so again, in a, in a very different way, but in a somewhat comparable way, like with the Posh Club or these other things, that you can you can have these places that start out as a a sort of defensive protective as a way of engaging with a crisis mm -hmm. um but then actually once they get going um i think the outside project is is becoming a real model of a different kind of queer space because again as, in terms of the way that these things move so dynamically that on the one hand i think it's really important to to sort of recognize and try to defend some of the old pubs, clubs, nightlife venues that are, among other things, that are repositories of so much queer cultural history. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
But at the same time... Well done on getting the RVT <laughs> graded as well, by the way. The only, it's the only one, isn't it? Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to recognise that that model of nightlife venue, even apart from the pressures that they're under, which aren't usually to do with whether they're popular or not, but to do with the uses of city space. Yeah. At the same time, those might not be the most important model of queer space going into the 21st century. Well, I've always I've always been curious. One of, one of many. Yeah, because in New York and LA, for example, there are community centres, so drop-in centres that are designed to be, you know, support networks for young LGBT people. And oh, anyone, anyone who wants to go in and get advice. We've never really had that. I don't think, um, in, a, in a way that's been readily accessible. Um, you know, a lot of community interaction is around nightlife, which is great for a lot of reasons, but it's also, you know, to have that balance or to at least have an option. You know, if you're someone like me who's sober, I know you're sober as well, it might be that, yeah. quite nice to be able to just go somewhere and talk to somebody where it isn't necessarily about, you know, alcohol, hedonism, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, there was the London Lesbian Gay Centre in the 80s, which closed down for various reasons. Um, and, you know, there have been other spaces. There's, you know, there was First Out, the cafe, mm -hmm. um, which was there for about 25 years. That closed down. Whereabouts was that? See, I'd never heard of that. Tom Tom on, Road, wasn't it? Near yeah, it was sort of just yeah. off. Was it St. Giles's? Circus. It was where all those Korean restaurants were. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Which part of that kind of cluster that got knocked when down? When did that the close? Oh. oh, right. So that's okay. now that big sort of glass fin yeah. entrance thing. Um, you know, but that was a, a cafe that was a daytime opening space, which then had a bar downstairs. There's places, you know, there's Gaze the Word. There's a bookshop. Oh, uh, I have heard of Gaze. I've been to Gaze the Word. Yeah, yeah. An amazing community Phenomenal, space. Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but there's a there's a real dearth hmm. of of places like that um and i think that is a real problem hmm. and i think um in a way it sort of gives the lie to my mind to this idea that you still sometimes hear sometimes within the scene as well as outside that well you know of course all of these places are closed because you can get married now and everyone's got grinder so there's no need <laughs> i mean grinder does have a lot to answer for but yes you know. it does <laughs> but venue closures are probably not one of them no um and I think it's, you know, if any of this were true, this idea that, well, we don't need these spaces because we live in an equal world now. I mean, if we really lived in an equal world, then these spaces would be proliferating, hmm. not closing down. And we'd be seeing more and more different kinds of queer space. I think it's definitely evolving. But I think just to go back to your point about Grindr not being responsible, there was a lot of talk for quite a long period of time that people weren't going out anymore. That people were because you had access to men and dating online that you weren't necessarily um bothered about going out um so you're saying you don't think that's true you don't think that had an impact on some of the venues um or do you think it's all down to councils and and developments well basically so uh university college london urban laboratory did a big research project a couple of years ago looking at changes in how many LGBT venues there were in London, basically going from 1986 up until 2016. Mm. Um, so it was kind mm. of sparked by some of these high profile closures and they have updated some of the research since then. Um, and essentially they found that, it, that, you know, the idea that fewer people were using these venues 
was nonsense. just wasn't the case. Yeah. There were maybe a couple of specific venues where that might have been the case. And there may have been a couple of specific venues where if really all that was on offer was a chance to hook up and you could do that on your sofa with an app <laughs> and there was nothing else going for it. If you didn't have to travel maybe. too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but overwhelmingly what they found was that what was causing these closures were redevelopment plans, mm. increases in rent, increases in business rates, landlords choosing to try, not even succeed, as in places like the Black Cat, but to try to make more money. Yeah. So mm. it's not necessarily about whether these places were commercially viable, which usually they they were. It was more about what what's the maximal profit that can be gained from this urban footprint. Yeah. And usually that's flats and a chain restaurant or cafe of some kind. Or probably a prep. It's always a prep. Now. <laughs> it's it's a always prep. a prep. It's going to be a prep. Um, but I do think, you know, that this idea of, exactly like you're saying, this mm. idea of, of people coming together, I think is absolutely vital. Um, and I've, I've been a bit, I've, really, I've been quite concerned this week um, about the coronavirus, not particularly around infection, although of course that's important and I'm washing my hands a lot and <laughs> all of these sorts of things. And and obviously it is a concern for people who are actually strongly at risk from the virus. Mm -hmm. But that is quite a small proportion of the population. What I'm really concerned about is, the po and I hope I'm being paranoid, but sort of the possibility that, um, that of this kind of a push towards self-isolation not just in medical terms, but actually in, a, in, in terms of the way that people think. That, I mean, we've seen this for, for decades. This is sort of the neoliberal way, really, self-isolation. Encourage people to think of themselves just as atomized mm. individuals, that everyone else is, is competition or a resource, that sort of thing. And that really where I find my hope for the possibility of, of better worlds in the future really does come around people being together in rooms and being with each other and listening to each other and caring for each other and giving each other the benefit of a doubt and arguing and fighting and making up and mm. finding new mm. and better ways of doing things. And so the possibility that, you know, something like this public health scare, I think could be a really powerful device for yeah. even more strongly encouraging people to self-isolate politically and culturally and socially as well as medically. Yeah, because I hope it. I hope it isn't the case because I was. I think that thing of self-isolation is, is quite a challenge to especially to, um, I see to to younger members of the LGBTQ plus community who have come to London for the first time and it's hard to meet people because the first people, they come not really knowing many people or knowing many people on the scene. The first experiences is people through apps and through sexual activity, which is which is great, but that's sometimes not the connections that you really, really, really make. And mm. and I think I have to say, like I ten years ago was very lucky when I came to London and I had Twitter and I met all of my queer friends in London through Twitter. I met I met Matt on Twitter. Um, I met my husband on Twitter. I. And none of us have shares in Twitter. I know I should have shares in Twitter. <laughs> yeah, please Twitter call me. Um, but I think it's. I think I was very lucky to to build that community. Quite it was instantly. a very yeah. It was and a very it was organic a, thing back then. And none of us were. And it, none of us was all. Well, it wasn't all based on 
sexual preferences or it was because we all in, we've, were interested in each other and what each other was doing and, yeah. and sort of what each other knew all about. shapes and sizes talk about pop music or you talk <laughs> about cultural stuff like and i slightly feel there isn't that anymore yeah twitter is a place for those space where you used to connect with people is now just about shouting about something you're angry at rather than about mm. community yeah i mean i i mean i'm it's funny when you talk about I, <laughs> it makes me think of being that much older um there used to be back in the back in the days of gaydar oh yeah <laughs> 10 messages before you're free dial up modem yeah, yeah dial up modem <laughs> um but there was also there was another online social platform called out in the uk yes my husband <laughs> talks about it he's, he's a little bit older than me um he talks about it quite a lot and says that was that's how he met all of his there was a lot of chat rooms yeah, yeah. a lot of chat rooms and communities and it was i mean i yeah i, I made a few friends on that and you know, and it, and sex happened. Yeah, that side. it happens. But it, actually, it wasn't about that. It wasn't particularly yeah. about that, and it was about this slightly more reaching it, out. Well, yeah, it felt mm. like it was more sort of connecting rather than. I think with the apps that we have now, there is quite a tendency, to, you know, to sort of present your brand and, <laughs> and to isolate to go to isolate. i don't like you yeah absolutely. i don't or automatically you're not my you're not my type so i don't want to meet you yeah and so it's automatically, very transactional yeah and you work directly with that one those what one group of people of who you like which then forms quite negative groups of people who don't really want to connect with anyone else because they're like i only like people who are in my section of society i think that's a real a real risk yeah yeah um so no i think that's i think that is at the crux of it that you know where are the the kind of opportunities for people of all ages mm -hmm. to meet i mean that's another thing that i'm that sort of started as part of my as part of the phd research but actually i've become really um you know that's, that sort of stayed a real sort of fascination um around the idea of connection between queer people of different ages and different generations which i think is something that actually funny enough i think now we have a bit more of that than we have at any time that i can remember mm. um and i think there's all sorts of very sort of complicated deep reasons going on behind that but in a way i think that's a sort of that's kind of an extrapolation of the idea that you know that it's good to have it's good for everyone to be in a room and to talk together mm -hmm. um but even then we maybe tend to have an idea if we're thinking of it in terms of queer nightlife or queer culture it still maybe tends to be people of a roughly similar sort of age yeah this night and mindset as well it has to be yeah. said i mean i don't think the problem is is i mean i love the ideas of everything that you're expressing and i think you know if you apply it to yourself, I think about my own evolution and how I was brought up and my own internalized homophobia and, you know, how used, how used, I was so used to a heteronormative setup and thinking if anything less than that, you're failing at life and you're not experiencing things. And I think one of the things that I took from watching your video and reading about what you've been doing is actually to deconstruct that as much as possible and be open to new ideas. But the, the reality is, is that not everybody is. And I think that's where we, our history gets lost a little bit. We can see that on um, social media platforms, you know, where people are, uh, people from within the community, uh, gay men in particular maybe, are not supportive of trans people. And you think, well, read a book, you know, or whatever. But it's about making that person do it and presenting it in a way, I guess, that makes sense 
to them and, and maybe resonates with them. And, and I think all of the things that you've been talking about, all these kind of nights that, that invite people in that are about hope, that are about optimism, are, a, are a, a step in the right direction and much better than the alternative, which is just to shout at people and get angry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because, you know, because there is a lot of that, as you say, especially on social media. I mean, Twitter is just a cesspool, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but listen, Ben, thank you so much for dropping by. We better let you go because we've been here for a long, long time. Um, can, before we let you go, can you just give out your social handles where people can give you a follow and about your night? Uh, yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's You're very welcome. It's been great. Um, yeah, so I'm doing the Dr. Ducky talk, How to Build a Hope Machine, on Saturday the 14th of March at the Chateau at 7 o'clock, which is in Camberwell. Um, and I'm on Twitter at not underscore television. <laughs> um, I'm not on Instagram. Uh, I think that's about it. I'm not very good on socials, really, but um, so I'm people, on there. Well, people <laughs> just have to get along to your show and see you yes. in person. Come into a room with other people. Okay. Amazing. Uh, so that's all from us here. Um, you can follow Hey Queer London at Hey Queer LDN on Instagram to discover London's queer scene. You can also follow us on the Tea and Cake pod on Twitter and Instagram as well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hey Queer London podcast Tea and Cake. A big thank you to Kaya in Brixton for letting us use their space to record this podcast. Kaya is a coffee shop and co-working space for freelancers on Cold Arbor Lane in Brixton. Follow them on social at Kaya Brixton. That's C-A-Y-A Brixton. An extra big thank you to Kelly Lee for letting us use her track Can't Dance as our intro music. Thanks also to Anna Goodman from Abstract Publicity for connecting us with Ben. The show was presented by Hey Quill London founder Steve Whiting and the phenomenal Matt Williams. Editing by Callum Watts. Dance with them, with them, with them, with them.